Let's come back together, find our seats. It's good to see everyone this morning. I, I wasn't sure if we'd have um, 10 people here in the rain or 150 people here in the rain. So, so praise God. I know you had to brave torrential downpours this morning and flash floods and um, cars being swept off the road. And, you know, as, as we know it in Southern California, a quarter of an inch of rain or three quarters of an inch of rain. But we appreciate that you're here. This morning, as I was thinking about um, different things in, in, in the text today, the text is a story of, of Paul's continued st- um, march to Rome, his continued steps on a mission, but it seems like every step of the way is, he encounters opposition. Something tries to stop him every single step of the way. You know, I, I think of going back to my childhood. Anyone watch Roadrunner and Wiley Cody? One of the best cartoons ever, other than Pinky and the Brain, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, <clears throat> and Roadrunner is always trying to get somewhere, and Wiley Coyote is always trying to kill the poor guy. Or, I'm sorry, it's a cartoon, to catch the poor guy, or whatever, <laughs> with boulders and dynamite. And I'm like, yeah, kids don't try this at home. Um, and and so the, the story goes where they're setting up this whole trap, and he's setting up this way to catch him. And then what always happens at the end? It backfires or Roadrunner gets away, some sort of twist that it doesn't work and he goes on to live another day. And whereas we we can laugh about that, as I was thinking about Paul's situation, I think life sort of feels that way sometimes. That we feel like every step of the way as we're making progress, as we're moving forward, this fallen world throws something at us. And, and maybe it's, it's a trial of some sort. Maybe it's a sickness of some sort. Maybe it's job loss. Whatever it is, it seems like there is always something that gets in the way that, that tries to stop us. And it can feel like, life can feel like it's just like one narrow escape after another from these situations. I can barely get through this, but I get through this. And we, we go on to another day, and I can barely get through this, but we get through this. We go on to another day, and then boom, the next thing hits. And I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Maybe financially, we just feel like we're skating by. And then the economy this year has been tough. Job situations have been tough. I've been um, just praying for you guys and all of the, the losses we've had in the last three months. And that's been tough. And some of the challenges with medical diagnosis, and that's been challenging. But as we come to today's text, I believe it has a word for us because Paul has some very challenging situations. And the very last verse, you got to wait today until the last verse for the hope. Um, because it, it, Luke is setting up the story of what's happening in Paul's life. But the, then he ends in 23 verse 11 with one of the greatest verses of hope and courage that I believe we need to, as a church. We need to take with us. So turn with me to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. We're look at the life of Paul and two more situations. And, and again, the context here is in the bigger picture of situation after situation after situation. He goes to Jerusalem, does nothing wrong, and they are trying to kill him. And, and they're falsely accusing him. The Romans had to save him. And, and the, the dreaded Roman arrest was actually the thing that God used to save his life. And so he gets arrested and all these things are happening. Last week he speaks to the crowd because he is determined to share the gospel at every point. 
And he gets to the end when he says that God sent him to the Gentiles. And at that point, things go south again. Things go bad again. And that's where we're going to pick up our story today in Acts chapter 22, verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a chair right around you. Black hardcover one. We'd love for you to take one of those. If you don't have one at home, take that home with you. So that way you have God's word. But this is a chance to to follow along and see what God has to say. We're in Acts chapter 22, verse 22. This morning, as we we look at the text, the summary is God determined to have Paul share the gospel in Rome. God determined to have Paul share the gospel in Rome, working and protecting through dire events to get him there. And so we come to verse 22, and the first point in your notes, the first situation, and and we have one and and one B, and then two and two B, because we're just going to look at two more situations today for Paul. The first situation, you can summarize by saying the gospel offends the culture of the day. The gospel offends the culture of the day. See, God's truth that the gospel is available to everyone, it violated the culture, and and the people respond with this violent anger, unheard of violent anger. Look at verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. And again, when you say up to this word, you got to go back to the last verse, look at context. And Paul had just said, and he, being Jesus, said to, to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now you have to understand the Jewish people of the time did not care for Gentiles. They didn't invite them into their homes. They didn't reach out to them. Gentiles were the people that weren't following God. And and it had developed this cultural sense that they were dirty, that they were dogs, they would call them. And, And so there's this hatred and animosity that I think you could argue is rooted in a sense of racism. And, and this, that's the culture of the day. And as soon as Paul says, by the way, Jesus sent me to everyone, including the Gentiles, they're like, oh no, we've gone too far now. And, and we read that and say, that's just silly. But we have to understand the culture of the day. Now we have other cultural things that we can relate this to and we'll get there. But the cultural, the gospel offended the culture of the day. So up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. It's such a nice way of saying kill him. (laughs) Away with this fellow from the earth. And so they are here saying, no, 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 this is too far. He needs to no longer be on this planet. And if you're wondering where I'm getting that they want to kill him, it's only one way off the planet or to, to remove him, and that's to kill him. Because what he had done by saying that God sent him to everyone, it confronted their bias that they believed was biblical, that they believed was biblical to the Old Testament. And he's saying, no, no, God sent me to everyone, to the Gentiles. And actually, if you study the Old Testament, you see clues of that and and truth of that all through it. But Paul's statement here revealed the bias that they had. And it angered them because they opposed God's truth. They opposed culturally accepting everyone into the kingdom of God. They had their own little club and no more were invited. And Paul rightfully confronts that. Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, 
And I thought about somehow illustrating this, throwing coats around and throwing, throwing dirt at you guys, and people in the front row would have loved it. Um, you can picture it. We're, we're not, I'm not going to do that in here. But they are, they are throwing coats. They are throwing dirt. There's all kinds of wonder, okay, what does this mean? Because culturally, we don't do this a lot. Uh, we, we don't go to games and do this. We don't do this. But there's a couple ideas. One is that they are just so angry and so agitated that they just start flailing and doing anything, flailing with dirt, flailing with their clothes. I think more likely it's that they're getting ready to stone him. Do you remember with Stephen, what was Paul doing? He was holding their cloaks. And so they would all take their cloaks off to stone somebody. And then they would start to pick up stones from the ground and you'd have dust and you'd have all that coming up. And so that's a possibility too. So there's a couple possibilities. We aren't sure, but we know that they are really angry and they are determined to end this guy's life, end Paul's life because he had the nerve to say, God wanted to save a different people group from them. And we see the, the, the depth of their distance from God and distance from God's truth who says everyone, everyone is welcome at the foot of the cross. Everyone needs the gospel. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we are equal at the foot of the cross in our need for grace, in our need for truth. And they were, they were fighting that to the point of wanting to kill Paul. Verse 24, the tribune, that's the, the, the Roman official that was over the soldiers there that had arrested him and saved his life. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So if his day hadn't gotten any worse, now the tribune who just saved his life said, you know what? I need to figure out what's going on here. I don't understand it. They're trying to kill you. And so he, he resorted to a typical Roman way of interrogation. They just dispensed with a lot of the pleasantries because they found if you start flogging someone, they talk sooner. It makes sense. And, and, and I don't want to make light of it, but that is what they did and that is what they thought. And this was horrible. In fact, one uh, marshal describes it like this. They would examine slaves and other suspected persons by whipping them with a scourge composed of leather thongs to which rough pieces of bone and metal were attached. And so the tribune's like, I don't know what's going on. Let's get to the truth. Let's get the whips out. And so they start to bend him over the pole and tie him up so his back is exposed. Now, scourging like this from the Romans, and they were very good at this, this often ended people's lives or disabled them. This would have been a really difficult situation for Paul to come through and still share the gospel. And so we start with two more situations or or two, two more groups that are trying to harm Paul. The Jewish people that he's part of, he's one of, and then the Roman tribune who's like, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And what, what, what is interesting about this is it really is because the truth of the gospel offends our culture today. And our culture cannot stand being confronted on truth. And so the truth of God always angers people that don't know him, especially in these cultural issues. We see it on the news all the time or on Twitter or Yahoo or wherever you get your news now. I don't, I don't even know where people get news anymore. 
But we see it all the, all the time. There was a Christian actress two weeks ago that came out and made a simple statement that she supported traditional biblical marriage. And now she's being ostracized and, and hated on and all these incredibly angry and mean things being said about people are quitting. Why? Because she spoke biblical truth, by the way, in a winsome kind way. So it wasn't her manner that got in the way here. And culture couldn't stand it. And village, you all know that we're seeing this more and more. And if we stand for biblical truth, whether it be on on any issue, that now our culture has gone so upside down and so topsy-turvy that that is a problem that has to be addressed. And yes, we don't want to let our manner anger people, but the truth of what we believe will anger people. And we are at a point where we have to be willing to, to, or we have to decide, are we going to stand for truth or not? Or are we going to capitulate and say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really say this about this. Or, eh, you know, those verses, I don't know. We're just going to ignore those for now in hopes of blending in. Paul most likely intentionally said, God called me to the Gentiles. Because he's trying to teach truth. He's trying to show truth. And so don't back down. Be winsome. Choose your battles. But stand for biblical truth in this fallen culture. As culture gets darker and darker, that truth village will give you more and more opportunities to show the light where the Holy Spirit is convicting. But if we compromise, if we blow out our light... The world's got nothing. The world needs the truth of Jesus Christ more than ever. And yes, it's hard to speak to cultural issues. But we're going to see in the next story, think through even the deeper issues that this world, every one of us are sinners. I already mentioned that. Every one of us needs Christ. That there is no hope, there is no future without Jesus Christ. And culturally, that is a thing that angers people now. How dare you be so intolerant? How dare you be so narrow-minded? But if we know that's the only way to eternal life with Christ, wouldn't we want to share that? And so Paul here is in a very difficult situation because he spoke truth, because he spoke truth against culture. And bigger picture here, it's a situation that threatens his continued ministry for God. If he dies being flogged, if he's disabled, he he doesn't go to Rome. He doesn't continue to share the gospel. And so this is a a crisis moment, the moment when it looks like the coyote has it finally for the roadrunner. Anyone ever root for the coyote? No, never mind. Um, And so we get to the second half of the story, but God. And both of the, the B points start with but God. But God uses a seemingly insignificant part of Paul's life to save him and set up his mission. Uh, listen to this. And this is, this is a, a detail of Paul's life that Paul waits till this point in you, to use, something he was born with, and that's his Roman citizenship, verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips... And so get the picture here. They would have a stone sometimes that they would drape someone over and take the the shackles on their hands and pull them down so that way you couldn't not be beat. 
they had Paul in that position. So this is like last moment stuff. And so they have him, and Paul, I don't know how he does it. I would love to see this. I don't know if he turns and says to the centurion standing by, by the way, I added that part, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? He just asks a question, an innocent question. See, what we don't know in our culture is that for them, a Roman citizen could not be beaten. In fact, it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen unless they were already condemned, unless a verdict had already been passed down. And this would have been something that would have been punishable by death. And so the centurion, when he hears the question, he's thinking, I don't want to die. This is, uh, what are we doing? And so he stops. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune, the guy in charge, and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he, being Paul there, and he said, yes. The tribune answered, well, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. And, and you got, you got to get the play here because it's actually a little humorous. The, the tribune comes and at this point, more and more people were being able to bribe their way into Roman citizenship with large sums of money. And so the whole status of Roman citizenship was losing some of its allure. It, it was losing some of its power. And so the, the tribune is like, well, I bought mine. And it's, I, I think you can read sort of a little bit of sarcasm there. Um, Anyone can become a citizen. Is it really that big of a deal? Let's get the whips. And Paul says, well, I'm a citizen by birth. And the only way you could be a citizen by birth is if your parents were. And in this case, probably his his father had done um, an incredible act of service for an emperor or a high-ranking Roman official to earn that. So Paul's was earned. And so it's sort of a little bit of one-upsmanship. But the tribune is like, oh, no. So, in verse 9, so those who are about to examine him, cross-reference, beat him, whip him. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. He's already broken the law by binding him, by having him in shackles without him being condemned. And so now... He, he backs off and Paul escapes, a narrow escape. And as we look at this, you know, I keep using the term narrow escape because that's how it feels like with Paul over and over. He gets into a bind and, and God somehow makes a, a strange way through. But Paul's narrow escape was God's mighty hand and plan in action. and action. And so there's hope even in this. Yes, Paul shouldn't have been bound. None of this should have happened. And what's interesting is the Roman citizenship also gives Paul the right to appeal if he's mistreated. Where, did he, where can he appeal to? Rome. His desire is to go to Rome and share the gospel with the emperor, which is a pretty incredible desire. Imagine if we were all here and someone said, and said you know what, I, I think God's calling for me is to get to the White House, sneak into the Oval Office, and share the gospel with President Biden. We'd be like, you're nuts. You'll be shot. But if that's God's plan, that's what God is going to make happen. 
And all of these things are steps towards making that happen. You know, we can ask questions like, what if Paul wasn't a citizen? What if he wasn't a Roman citizen? You know, he, he would have been beaten, possibly killed. It would have been brutal. The gospel might have stopped there, except God would have had another way. But what's interesting to me is God uses sometimes those seemingly insignificant things from our past for his purposes. We have a whole lot of different pasts and history sitting in this room. Whole lot of different backgrounds. Whatever background you're coming from, when you give your life to Christ and you're serving him, he is going to use that for his plan. And he will use things that maybe you don't even realize he can use. I, I can tell story after story of this, and some of them are just silly. I, I can remember freshman year of high school, I was going down the road of baseball and sports and all that. I ended up with an injury that just took all of that away. And, and, and I was like, God, I, I'm angry. This is, this is my dream. What are you doing? And so instead, I had to go do a, a lot of classes on public speaking, on drama, how to project, how to, to do all these. And here we are. Which one has served God's purposes more? Not baseball. I don't do well at baseball. <laughs> but here we are doing living nativity, and here we are preaching the word. I could not have planned that. But God knew what was coming and orchestrated events and orchestrated even difficult events to accomplish that. So take hope in these stories from Paul. Even though they seem like narrow escapes, God has a plan and he is executing his plan. If you are still here, God still has a job for you to do. And he is working toward you doing that job and fulfilling that mission. And even when things seem dire, even when things, everything seems against you, like Paul or the roadrunner, God is still working out his plan for you to finish his work. And when you have finished his work, then he will take you home to glory. And not before then. Not before then. Elizabeth Elliot says this, and I love this quote. She says, every experience of trial puts us to this test. Do you trust God or don't you? She has a way of just boiling things down to simplicity and simple truth. Do you trust God or don't you? In whatever situation you're in, do you trust God or don't you? Is God going to use it for his purpose or did he miss this one? And he will use it for his purpose. Even random things like Paul's citizenship. And so now Paul's out of the woods. Everything's great until the next verse. And we get to verse 30 in the second situation. A godly life exposes and often angers those not following God. A godly life exposes and often angers those not following God. So the gospel confronts culture. You living for God exposes, exposes other people's lives and it confronts sin. And in this case, it confronts sin to the point where people are angry and making just wrong accusations and evil treatment. So we get to verse 30. But on the next day, so he got a night of rest. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he being the tribune, 
unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So, so understand a, a little bit of sympathy for the Roman official here. He still doesn't know why people are mad at Paul. And he has a near riot on his hands. If he lets Paul go, the guy gets killed. And, and he's trying to keep peace, trying to do his job, doesn't get any of this God stuff. And so he said, well, I can't beat him and get the answers I need. So let's get all of the Jewish officials together. And he, he brings the Sanhedrin together the council of both Pharisees and Sadducees and the, the high priest. He's like, you guys all come together and, and ask him questions. Tell me what's going on. And so he's trying to find out the real reason why Paul's being accused. They all come together. And then we get to, to chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, and he speaks first here, brothers, reminding them that he is also Jewish, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And so he says, I'm trying to live for Christ. Now, there's, there's some debate about this verse. Does that mean he's, he, he was calling killing Stephen good conscience or arresting Christians? No, this looks like he's talking about the recent events or the events since his conversion. He's saying, all of these things you're accusing me of, I've been following God. I have a clear conscience about this. I'm innocent. In verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And so Paul says, I'm innocent. I have a clear conscience before God. High priest says, that's equivalent to blaspheme. Hit him. And, And not just a little slap. Hit him. And they do, it looks like. So Paul speaks truth. And just because he's living for God, it gets this kind of response. By the way, it is illegal for a high priest to command this. The Sanhedrin has a system very similar to ours in that you are innocent until proven guilty. And so to strike someone like this in the middle of testimony would have been considered highly illegal and inappropriate. And so the high priest says to hit him, they probably do. Some of the things, even Josephus, one of the historians of the time, talks about Ananias and says that, that he has a quick temper, he's insolent. Basically, he's sort of a jerk. And so here Paul says, I'm right before God, and the answer is to hit him. Now, it's interesting because what the answer should have been is evidence and proof of why Paul wasn't right before God. But the high priest had none of that because Paul was living right before God. And... and village, that is a little bit of the culture we live in. When we live right before God, the people don't have anything to say, but they're going to try to say something. They're going to try to attack. They're going to try to make things up because it's very annoying when you aren't walking with God to be around people that are. It's like someone shining a light on the dark places of life. Still live for God. Still stand for him. And so this is a, a, a per, they resort to a personal physical attack on Paul when they had nothing else. Much like people do in writing today, in social media. And we do this all the time, don't we? We, we hear an argument and we're not quite sure how to refute it. So we say, well, well, you're just a Democrat. Or you're just a Republican. Or you're just an independent. I don't know, whatever it is. You're just an angel fan. What can you know? 
a lot. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm saying don't do this. <laughs> we do this sometimes. You're just single. What can you know? You're young. What can you know? And we write off arguments and we write off truth because we don't know how to answer it. We don't want to take the time to answer it and really deal with some of the issues that are being brought up. And Paul is facing that here. Now, verse 3 is a really interesting verse, Paul's response. And there's a couple ways to look at this, and I'll just briefly mention them. We can talk more later if you're interested. But then Paul said to him, the high priest, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Interesting response. Because Paul here is, is bringing up probably two different things. Jesus, when he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, and the idea of that is on the inside they're dead and stinking, and on the outside they paint it to make, make it look good, and you don't see the crud that's on the inside. Sort of like lipstick on a pig. Ezekiel also talks about this when he's calling out false prophets. And he says, you whitewash a wall to make it look strong, but the first time someone blows on it, it falls over. And so it's, it's a statement of hypocrisy. And so Paul basically says, high priest, you're a hypocrite. God is going to judge you. He's going to strike you because of what you've done. Now, it's interesting to try to figure out, was Paul right or wrong to do this? And let me read the next two verses, then I'll I'll give you a couple of ideas. Then those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And and the, the, the general reading of it looks as if Paul responded in anger here. And he responded quickly. Because remember, Paul is not Jesus. Paul was a a man, he was a human being just like us. And, And he himself says that he struggled with sin. And so a possibility is, is he blew it. He reacted rashly. Anyone here ever reacted rashly to something? No, no we, we have a perfect angelic group here, church family. No, no, we do. We react rash. I react rashly to things sometimes. And so that's a possibility here, especially verses four to five tend to, to, to lead you to that conclusion because he backs off. And in, in many ways, verse five is an apology. Some have said, well, he was rightfully acting as a prophet of God. And so the high priest deserved this. I think that's our sense of justice, not God's word. Because Jesus says to turn the other cheek. Jesus talks about the manner in which we go through things. Now, Paul's not wrong in what he says. The content isn't wrong. But perhaps who it was directed to and how it was directed was beyond Scripture. We don't know. Another uh, Two other options people throw out is maybe because his eyesight was bad, he didn't know it was the high priest. Because it looks as if uh, in verse 5 he says, I didn't know, brothers, this was the high priest. And I think that's probably part of the truth is Paul had been away from Jerusalem most of the time for the last 20, 25 years. He had never met the high priest. He wasn't there. And so probably he didn't recognize the high priest. But he still humbled himself in verse 5 and said, you know what? I'm going to submit to scripture and I shouldn't have done that. 
And, and so for me, I respect Paul for, for his humility and his, re, his, his submission to scripture in verse five of saying, yeah, okay, shouldn't have done that. So many times when we blow it, we think that's our defining moment. And usually how we respond to blowing it is our defining moment. Do we respond in humility, in repentance and asking forgiveness? And Paul here humbles himself to the word, even though he had every right to say that. And the high priest was acting illegally and acting hypocritically. None of that is false. But Paul also knows scripture says, don't speak that way to a ruler of the people, to a high priest. So I think there's a a lot of things to learn there. As Paul comes off of that and submits to scripture. But again, this is another dire circumstance. The council, he's hit by the council. He's in a sense declared guilty before any facts are given. And if they come back and can legitimately prove to the Roman tribune that Paul has done something wrong, then Paul is facing the judgment for that and the consequences for that. And so we get to the second half, verses 6 through 10. But God again. But God gives Paul wisdom and courage to bring up the most important issue, the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, the soldiers then had to save him again because it just blew up. Verse 6, let's dig in. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And so Paul here shrewdly and with great wisdom reads the room, sees who's in the room, and he picks a truth that was essential to his message that he knew would cause discussion and debate and friction because, and it would bring it to the, the, the forefront. See, we have to understand the Sanhedrin, like I said, was part Sadducees, part Pharisees. Paul was raised a Pharisee. He knew this. He knew this group. The Pharisees, as, as followers of the law, they also believed in an afterlife. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. And they believed in, in the supernatural, angels and spirits. And so that was part of their system. The Sadducees had gone a different direction. And so they didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. This is it. Praise God, this isn't it. This is it. And, and so they denied the supernatural. Some of the things in the Old Testament, they might have said, okay, God might be able to work that way. But the whole idea that you could come back and that, uh, uh, that a person could be a spirit or an angel and not get into the theology of that because we wouldn't agree with the angel part. They're like, none of that is possible because that supernatural doesn't happen. And so when Paul says, it's because of the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial. Now he has now divided the room. You guys are pro-resurrection. You guys are anti-resurrection. And theologians love a good battle. And so they start arguing and they start fighting. Now think about this, something you might miss in the passage. Why is the, why is the resurrection the central point? What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Not just the resurrection in general, not just the afterlife in general, because it says, this is why I'm in trouble, because I'm preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. 
And so in the middle of all this, Paul still brings it back to the most important point. It's about Jesus. It's about not only his death on the cross taking our place for our sins, but three days later he rose from the dead. And he's alive. Today he is still alive. And isn't this still the the critical point of the gospel? If Jesus is still dead, Paul said, your faith is in vain. And, and, And so even today, if you're sitting here and you've heard about Jesus, know this as part of the, the, the truth. Yes, Jesus died on the cross in our place. He took the penalty for our sins that we should have had to pay. But three days later, he walked out of that tomb alive by the power of God. Permanently saying, sin has been taken care of. Your sin, my sin has been taken care of. It has been dealt with. It has been paid And death has been conquered. And because of that, we have the hope of eternal life. And so Paul here in the middle of these dire situations says, by the way, this is all about whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. And the Pharisees, and he says it in, in a little, in his wisdom, in a little bit of an obscure way to get them fighting and discussing it. But now they are discussing the very core of the gospel. This is beautiful. Because we know Jesus did rise from the dead. And we have abundant evidence to that effect. They would have been able to talk to people that had talked with Jesus. And so he brings it back to the most important thing, the root issue. When he had said this in verse 7, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, no angel, no spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose. This isn't the clamor of like Santa Claus and the reindeer coming on your roof as the the popular poem says. This is is a clamor. This is a fight. This is a brawl. People are angry. People are yelling. This great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. Pharisees are defending Paul now. They're like, resurrection could have happened. So, so maybe we should listen to him. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if an angel, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, Paul's in a mess again. When the situation, when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Paul speaks truth again. He's not going to back off from the gospel, from the root issue of the gospel. He's not going to back off that he is living for God. And again, they try to kill him. And again, God orchestrates the evil Romans to come in and save his life. God's able to use whatever pieces are on the chessboard. Because he's sovereign over all. He is sovereign over everything. And so Paul narrowly escapes violence again. But this again sets up Paul's mission. Paul is going to Rome to share the gospel in Rome. God has called him to do that. And God will not let anything stop him from getting there. 
And so we get to verse 11, which I think is just a wonderful conclusion to the passage. Verse 11, the following night, and and, and picture this. Paul is just a normal human being. At some point, all of these situations have to be a little discouraging. What's it going to be tomorrow? Who's going to try to kill me tomorrow? How many lashes will I take tomorrow? Who's going to try to tear me to pieces tomorrow? God, I thought you had a mission for me. I thought you said to come to Jerusalem to share the gospel and that I would end up going to the ends of the earth to Rome to share the gospel. And it just doesn't feel like that's happening now. It feels like I I just hit my head against the wall every step of the way. I don't know if that's what he's feeling. That's what I would be feeling at this point. It'd be discouraging to every step of the way of someone attack you, try to kill you. And then on top of that, if he feels like he had blown it with the, the, the high priest, there's a lot of emotion going on here. But God, in his grace and his mercy, showed up to give reassurance. The following night, the Lord, and probably talking about Jesus um, coming to him, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. And so he starts with, have confidence, don't be down. Take courage, take heart, stand up. You can do this. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And you see the first part of that is a commendation. As you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, Paul, you shared the gospel. You were a witness for me. You did your job in Jerusalem. Yeah, may not have turned out like you wanted it to, but you shared the gospel. And so this is a commendation from Jesus to him. And then he gives a mission, so you must testify also in Rome. Courage. Jesus says to take courage. And, and, and think for a moment, what gives courage? You know I, know, I know there's some alcoholic drinks that are called liquid courage. Does it give courage? No, usually more stupidity, but that's a whole different discussion. Courage is an ability to move forward with confidence, knowing that God is in control. That is true courage. If, if we don't have that kind of assurance that God is in control, it's not courage. Sometimes it's just blind luck or just hoping or, or silliness. But courage says, I can stand up in the face of, of all the awful things happening and I can move forward for God because I know he has me on mission. That's courage. And I, and I read this verse and, and I take great hope in this and great courage in this because God is saying to Paul, all of these things you're going through, they weren't about saving your life. All of my narrow rescues of you that you think are narrow, it's not about saving your life. It's because you will complete your mission and nothing will stop you because God is in control and God is in charge. Paul had a job to do and God was going to make sure he accomplished it. Even with further dire circumstances, God's going to make sure that he does his job. And I, try, I, I take great courage in this as we know so many, so many loss and so many things have happened in the last few months. 
and things that Satan would love to, to have stop us, to have us cancel living nativity, to not do Project Touch, to not be loving our neighborhood, to not be sharing the gospel as a church individually, to keep us from ministry, to keep us from, from sharing God with others. But this verse says, take courage because you will do what I've asked you to do. My job for you, my mission for you is my, and this is God speaking, his mission for us, he is able to make sure happens. We don't have to be the one that makes sure it happens. We just have to follow. We just have to trust. And that trust, like for Paul, is often one day at a time and one situation at a time. He's probably thankful he didn't know about all the shipwrecks and all the beatings and all the opposition and torn from limb to limb or attempting. He just woke up every day and trusted God and took courage. And that's what we're to do. We're to wake up every day and say, what does God want me to do today? How can I move forward with his mission? How can I move forward with making sure I'm living the resurrection visibly? How can I move forward and make sure people know the truth that I come in contact with? Knowing that no amount of human opposition can thwart God's plan for you or his purposes. That is comforting. That means we can take courage and step out for God. The message to Paul here is take courage. Stand for God, he's at work, and you will complete his work. Take courage, stand for God, he's at work, and you'll complete his work. And so village, as we close this text, that's God's message for us. Take courage, stand for God, he's at work, and we will complete his work. Even when you can't see it or understand why, stand for God. Take courage. He's at work. Even when you're attacked by those around you, even when circumstances are unbearable, even when grief is overwhelming, take courage. Stand for God. He's at work. That's what verse 11 says. If you you look through our our, um, theme for the series, if you can put up the next slide. Theme for the series is Acts Rediscovering Church. And the bottom is the unquenchable gospel in action. And what we're seeing in Acts is no matter what Satan throws at the church, or whatever, however Satan wants to stop the gospel, the gospel keeps going. It's unquenchable, right? Can't be, can't be stopped. Can't be snuffed out. We are his church, and the gates of hell will not pre- prevail against it. In the same way as we live for Christ, We are called to live unquenchable lives that aren't stopped, that take courage, that do God's work no matter what. To take courage, to stand for God and know that he's at work and will enable us to complete his work. I want to just close by mentioning something we're going to do in January. And I've mentioned it before, but give you a little more dates. We're going to have a time of 24 hours of prayer as a church. Because what's the best way to take courage? on our knees, reminding ourselves that God is in control, God is sovereign, God is at work, and he will accomplish his purposes. So we're going to call it unquenchable 24 hours of prayer. 
It's going to be January 6th and 7th. We're going to go from 3 p.m. to 3 p.m. And you'll be able to sign up for different hours. And the focus is really simple. We're going to pray. We're going to be on our knees. We're going to pray. Pray that we will see God work in 2023. Pray that we will be able to take courage. Pray that the church in America and in the world will be able to take courage no matter the circumstances. We'll pray for individual needs. We'll pray for church needs. We'll pray for our country. We'll pray for the world. We're going to pray. So I encourage you, take courage, and let's start on our knees. Start the year on our knees. Plan to spend an hour or two here during that time. Plan to spend some dedicated time in prayer. And then let's see what God does next year. Because God's plan won't be thwarted. It will continue. Just as Paul, God said to Paul, you will testify about me in Rome. Keep in mind, Paul is still sitting in a prison in Jerusalem when that is said. And God says, take courage. Let's pray. Lord God, oh Lord, we need courage in this world, in this Genesis 3 fallen world. And we know that this is a spiritual battle. We know that we don't wage battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers of darkness. And so, Lord, help us to trust you and see your work and know that you've got this and we don't have to be afraid that everything's going to fall apart for your church and your kingdom. And so, Lord, we can move forward without fear. We can move forward courageously. And we can share the light of the gospel to a lost world. Lord, encourage us. I know there's all kinds of things going on. Encourage us with your word. Bring comfort, bring peace, bring resilience. Make us your unquenchable people for the gospel. In your precious name, amen.